Well, if you would open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 9, that will be our text this morning. We are in a series in the book of Joshua, a series that we have entitled The Promised Land. Joshua is the sixth book of the Bible, it's in the Old Testament, and to continue to give you a sense of the context, God's own people, those are his words by the way, the Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, God heard them crying out, he heard their prayers and he raised up a deliverer. That's the story in the book of Exodus, that God would bring his people out of slavery Not only to set them free, but to give them a new place. To give them a new home. To give them a new reality. God brings them out of slavery to give them a place of blessing. A place called the promised land. That's the context for the book of Joshua. And from the moment they step foot into the land of promise, this place of blessing, as soon as they cross over the Jordan River into the promised land, it is so huge for us to see this. Because they do not walk into your best life now. They do not walk into health, wealth, and blessing. They do not walk into candy canes and unicorns. And they don't walk into life perfect. No, They walked into difficulties. They walked into obstacles. They walked into challenges. And we need to see this. They walked into a war. A war that would sometimes have them on the offense and sometimes have them playing defense. And we need to see that. And we need to see this concept clearly in the scriptures because it's the very paradigm of a New Testament reality that we walk in. It's not just an Old Testament picture. It's a New Testament life. This is what it looks like to walk in the promised land. Because, friends, if we're not careful, if we don't keep this idea before us, then slowly we can be persuaded by a pervasive culture that tells us that with Christ we should not struggle with sin. That tells us that with Christ, we should not face hardship. With Christ, we can be entitled. We deserve. We're owed. That life should be grand. That life should be easy peasy lemon squeezy, as my children like to say. And nothing could be further from the truth. Now, in the book of Joshua, the picture you see is that God is at work in and through his people, and this is the predominant theme. He's not calling them to comfort. He's not calling them to ease. No, he's calling them to lead a life that is fully dependent on him. And he's calling them to lead a life that's fully dependent on his strength. That's the picture you see over and over and over and over again in the book of Joshua. And it's the picture that God has for you now. This morning we're going to see another picture of a different kind of fight. It's one of the things I love about the book of Joshua is it presents this war to us from several different fronts. It doesn't always look the same way. This morning we're going to see a different face and one we need to be aware of. Joshua 9, verse 1. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, 
all along the coast of the Great Sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. And we see the list again. If these nations, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, sound familiar, it's because these are the nations that are described as designated for destruction in Deuteronomy 20. A phrase we looked at and unpacked two weeks ago. It simply means as a whole that these nations God had found guilty, and in their guilt he was going to rightly judge them. They had been found evil, and as a righteous judge, he was calling for them to be destroyed. We preached that two weeks ago. You can listen to it. I can't defend it all now. But what we see is that these six nations who've heard of the Lord God, they've heard and seen of the works of the Lord God, and rather than considering him, rather than believing in him, rather than turning to him, they decide to wage war against him. And now they're not doing it individually. They've decided to form an alliance to stand against Joshua, Israel, and the God of Israel. Verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all of their provisions were dry and crumbly. Friends, you need to see an accurate picture of what's happening here. These people of Gibeon, the Gibeonites, who, by the way, it is crucial that you know that a Gibeonite is a Hivite. You see that in verse 7 when he calls them Hivites, and then in Joshua eleven nineteen, he'll note the Hivites that lived in Gibeon. It's important that you see that because these Gibeonites who are Hivites are bound for destruction and they're about to do something here that we need to pay attention to. That is that this people that is opposed to the God of Israel that's aligned themselves with other natures Nations, rather than showing up in a traditional way, rather than rearing an army, rather than fortifying a city, takes a different strategy. And it says in verse 4 that they acted with cunning. Other versions say they resorted to a ruse. They acted craftily. They turned to deception. They decided to deceive the Israelites to lie to them, to put forward a false front to mislead them. Let's see how this plays out, verse 6. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. Now I want you to have this picture in mind. This is a people now wearing wore-out clothes. Interesting how number of times a worn-out shows up in the text. Wearing worn-out clothes, wearing worn-out sandals, carrying worn-out food and drinks. You see them all dressed up, but look at their words. We've come from a distant country, which sounds really, really convincing. But an interesting fact is these guys must have had a sense of Deuteronomy. 
Because if you have a sense of Deuteronomy and you understand that these six nations are under a banner of destruction, then you would also see that there's an entirely different provision throughout Deuteronomy for people from a far-off country. They knew exactly how to deceive Israel. They'd done their homework. And now they want to cut a deal. So how's Israel going to handle this? Verse 7. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? The New Living Translation puts the question differently. It says, how do we know you don't live nearby? How do we know you're not just our neighbors and you're just dressing up? You, you see that immediately they catch on. Hey, there's something happening here. We, we know what you're up to. Let's keep going. Verse 8. So they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? They answered him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord, your God. For we've heard a report of him and that all he did in Egypt and that all he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, to, to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now make a covenant with us. They present some evidence, verse 12. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them and behold, they have burst. These garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. What's fascinating to me about this text is that the Gibeonites set out to deceive Israel and they saw through it immediately. And yet the Gibeonites pressed on. They leaned in further and deceived more and told more and more and more lies, even to the point of, hey, try our old bread. Let this be evidence. And in verse 14, it says, and so the men took some of their provisions, took the bread, took the wine, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Let me read that again. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. So, the picture. You have people in worn out clothes, carrying old, worn out supplies, with worn out wineskins, worn out bread. Hey, try our bread. Okay. We'll try your bread. But we're not going to seek the Lord. We're going to look and see what you're dressed like. We're going to take our observations but we're not going to see the Lord. We're not going to seek after him. We're going to look at what's in your hands, but we're not going to lift our eyes to heaven. We're going to trust what we can touch and feel more than the one who made all of it. They did not ask counsel from the Lord. This is a thematic reality in Joshua. We saw it at Ai, that we tend to take confidence in our flesh to put our hope in us, to see what's before us and decide if it tastes good or if it doesn't and we don't seek the Lord. 
This is the sin of Adam and Eve early on in Genesis 3. You read that text and you find Eve just staring at the apple. Man, it must be so good. They did not seek the Lord. Verse 15. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. And at the end of three days, after they'd made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they had lived among them. Three days it took to find the truth. Three days. As the chapter continues, we would read that the leaders realize that they've put themselves in a bind. Sin always puts us in a bind. That they have been commanded to carry out God's judgment. And yet now they've covenanted with these same people. And they've covenanted in such a way that if they broke their covenant, they themselves would be destroyed. What do you do in a bind? Well, they further bind themselves. In the end, they make them slaves carrying water and cutting wood. And if you don't know the end of the story, you might think that's a great ending. You might believe that the Israelites came out ahead because they don't have to cut their own wood or carry their own water anymore. But that is to not remember the text. For if you remember Deuteronomy 20, when God declares judgment on these nations, the why was the important part. Deuteronomy 20, verse 18, God says, do this that they may not teach you to do according to all of their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord, your God. Part of God's rationale in his right judgment of them was that he clearly foresaw they will all be led astray. All of you. And you'll walk away from the Lord, and it's just not worth it. You read through that. If you want to read in Deuteronomy 12, you want to read in Deuteronomy 18 or Deuteronomy 7, you see the pictures. They sacrifice their kids. You'll start doing that. You'll start following the practices of the world. It's not just about wood cutting and water gathering. You want to know how this story ends? I'll push us forward into the book of Judges. Judges 3, verse 5 and 6. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Were they faithful? No. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. What you find in this text is that God had completely warned his people. He put provisions before them. In fact, if you read the whole book of Deuteronomy, it's filled with warning after warning after warning of Moses telling the people from the mouth of God, you got to obey me or you'll stray. you got to be faithful or you'll, you'll be turned over to idolatry.
And they were completely turned over to idolatry. What God said would happen, happened. God's warnings were good warnings. When he says, stay away from the cliff, it's because there's danger. Friends, how can it be that we mess with sin? Why would we dabble with it? Why would we ever think that we could control it? Why would we ever believe any of the lies that sin puts before us? Because if you follow the example of the Old Testament, which Paul tells us to do, you would quickly find that sin, when you start dabbling with it, starts to own you. And it becomes your master. And you are given over to complete idolatry. So as we look to apply Joshua 9, we need to be reminded of the words of Paul. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I say that to tell you that likely nobody is going to show up at your house today wearing wore-out clothes, handing you old bread, and actually be your neighbor. And yet there is a deceiver out there that wants you to believe differently about sin than what is true. First Peter 5, 8, the words of Peter, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, if you open your door this afternoon when somebody knocks on it, if you saw a lion through your peephole, you wouldn't answer the door. That's why Satan doesn't dress up like a lion. That's why he presents himself differently. He looks much more seductive, much more appealing to us now. Friends, if you've crossed over the Jordan River... If you've believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you're seeking to follow Him, to walk in Him, it may not always seem like it, but you are in a spiritual war, one that looks far more like the book of Joshua than you realize. And Satan who very well may be a well-dressed man in a well-speaking voice, is looking for someone to devour. And we have to be aware. We have to have our antenna up. We have to wage war on sin. Because sometimes that fight will be obvious. Sometimes it will be a strong walled city sitting before us that looks insurmountable. But other times it will show up in old worn out clothing looking innocent and easy to defeat. But we don't think there's a fight. And that's why we get destroyed. One of the most clear places to see this in the scriptures is Proverbs 7. Don't know how familiar you are with the book of Proverbs. It's a phenomenal book. I'm walking through it with my son right now. In the book of Proverbs, you have a dad sitting down with his son teaching him wisdom. If you're not familiar with Proverbs 7, it's a passage we need to all have in our pocket. 
This is what Proverbs 7, this is the picture. For at the house of my window, I've looked out my lattice, and I've seen amongst the simple. I've perceived among the youth a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight and the evening at the time of night and darkness. Solomon takes his son and says, hey, let's look out the window. I want you to watch something. That guy is an idiot. Look at what he's doing. He's putting himself in the path of destruction. He's walking in places that are incredibly unwise. Verse 10. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. Do you see the picture of the lion waiting to pounce? She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows. So now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. This picture in Proverbs 7 reminds me of nearly every college guy I've ever met. Looking for trouble. It's it's a seductive picture thinking, this isn't that bad. This won't hurt me. There's not a huge cost here. The story builds. Verse 16, I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. Everything about that is intended to be attractive. It's intended to be alluring. It's intended to put a hook in your mouth like you're a fish, and it's you're slowly, slowly getting reeled in. For my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. The hook is set. This young guy is going down. Verse 21. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. Now, if you don't know the next two verses, you might just think this is a young guy sowing his oats. He's got to learn a lesson. He's going to, this is going to make him wiser. It's going to make him stronger. What's going to happen here? What we never appreciate about sin is the cost. That's what we never, ever, ever, ever appreciate. Verse 22. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know it will cost him his life. Solomon is writing to his son saying, let's want you watch this scene. This guy thinks what he's doing is innocent. He thinks what he is about will be fine. He thinks he's just out for a, a good night, a good time. He has no idea what it will cost him. He's about to get slaughtered. He's about to get taken down. And it's going to cost him everything. Friends, we need to understand that Satan is a deceiver and he's after your life. All of it. Not just the little parts, 
All of it. In John 8, Jesus says, when Satan lies, he speaks from his character. Jesus is affirming the nature and character of Jesus that out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks and it's lies. Jesus goes on to say he is a liar and the father of lies. Which is to say this. That it is Satan that whispers to you, you are not good enough. It is Satan that whispers to you that you are not beautiful. It is Satan that whispers that this will make you feel better. It will ease your pain. It is Satan that whispers to you, this is not that big a deal. Everyone else is doing it. Nobody will be hurt. It is Satan that is whispering seductively in your ears. And if you're only armed to fight lions, you're going to lose half the wars. If you're only set up to fight and wage battle in a large army, you're going to be taken down. Because that's not always how it presents itself. It's one of the great realities of digging back into the Old Testament to see the examples that there'll be days in your life where your fight against sin will look like Jericho. There'll be days in your life when your fight against sin will look like Ai. There'll be days in your life when your fight with sin will look like some innocent old Gibeonites showing up in old clothes who don't look harmful, who don't look like they're going to try to challenge you, who don't look like they're going to try to defeat you, who look like they're just trying to make peace with you, and you're going to take it hook, line, and sinker with no understanding that it will cost you your life. Satan is a deceiver. Sin is deceptive. It exists to lead you astray. Friends, we can have this picture as if God the Father and Jesus the Son, when we start struggling with sin, he's standing there with a stick going, you moron. What we miss is that more often than not, Jesus is looking at us compassionately going, oh, I wish, do you have any idea how much better I have for you than the silly decision you're about to make? Do you understand the overwhelming amount of blessings I want to bestow on you, I want to flood you with? It's very much the picture of God calling his people out of slavery and into the promised land. He's going to put obstacles before you. It's going to be hardships before you. And your job is not to be strong. It's to be faithful. It's to be faithful. And to understand in each and every one of those events, God will provide the strength. So when God says, march around the city, well, that's dumb. What are we going to accomplish? Your job is not to outthink God. It's just do it. Call Nick. He'll help you. It's to be faithful. That's the difference between the Israelites when they walked into Ai the first time and when they walked into Ai the second time. That's the difference when we these Gibeonites walk up. If they would have just said, hey, this is a cool story. Let's go talk to God. Let's see what God has to say about you showing up this way. Do you not think God would have said, actually, they live about three blocks away. They're against you. It is telling that they did not seek God. There's something about us that falls quickly. 
There's something about us that Jesus even forecasts for us that we are so prone to deception. We're so prone to fall. So how do we fight it? How do we go forward? Well, as we start to close, I want to give you two thoughts. The first is this, that we need to realize that Satan is a deceiver and that part of his deception is deceiving our us. We often don't realize how much we participate in our own self-deception. I read a book a number of years ago called I Told Me So, a book that begins to reveal our own lies that we believe, that we don't really walk with a recognition of how often we speak lies to ourselves. How often we are the ammo that Satan needs. Because we're willing to just walk around repeating lies about ourselves. I can't do this. I'm not good enough. Why do I even try? Our own mental voices, our own self-reality starts to speak the words of Satan. And it fortifies lies in our thinking so that we are deceived even in our own self-monologue. We need to realize that. Adrian Rogers, the great Baptist preacher, when preaching 1 John 1, said this. Now let's think for just a moment about the deceitfulness of sin in the life of a Christian. There are very few things that are more deceitful, more deceiving than sin in the life of a Christian. I want you to see, as we look here in 1 John chapter 1, notice verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not tell the truth. Just underscore that phrase, if we say. Now skip down, if you will, to verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The same phrase. Now skip down to verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the truth is not in us. Three times we read this statement. If we say, if we say, if we say. And three times what we say is connected with lying and deceitfulness. So you can see why I'm calling this point the deceitfulness of sin in the life of a Christian. Adrian Rogers, in his exposition of 1 John 1, points that out precisely to us. Satan is a liar. He's working to deceive us, and he sometimes uses our own voice. Friends, your only hope to to fight that is to spend more time in this book. It's to learn the voice of the shepherd. It's to know the voice of your father. So that in those moments when you're so prone to give in and proverbially you've got a little voice on your left and a little voice on your right and you go, but this one seems really good. But that's the voice of the shepherd. We need to learn the voice of our father. That's our hope. We need to learn his voice. And we put something before us, when he gives us an escape route, when he gives us an escape plan, we need to heed that. Call Nick, he'll tell you to just do it. And secondly, we need to consider Hebrews 3.13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, 
that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But exhort one another every day. Do you see the community in that passage? You can't fight it alone. Exhort one another every day. But the author of Hebrews is pointing out to you that if you don't want to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, you need to walk in community. And you need to walk in a community that walks close enough to you that people can exhort you. That means they understand your self-deception and they can speak into it. They can say to you, that's, that's from Satan. And that's walking pretty close to somebody because these people are supposed to be exhorting one another, not once a week, not, hey, go to church on Sunday, you'll be exhorted by Pastor Ben, you'll be fine. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin In addition to the narrative of God's word in our lives, we need the narrative of each other. Can I get my plug in for community groups? It's not a church program. It's not intended just to be a, hey, let's pat our numbers. We don't even count them. I just know that if you get believers around each other, what ends up happening is somebody says, man, I'm really struggling with sin. And somebody else goes, really? I am too, but I didn't know I could say that. And then the third guy goes, they're both struggling? Me too. And all of a sudden you get a community that can exhort one another every day. One of the sweetest realities of my life, and if I talk about my own community group, it's because I live in it, right? We text each other all the time. How to pray for one another, how to encourage one another. It has been one of the most powerful things in my life over the last six months. Is just watching these saints love each other and carry each other's burdens and exhort each other. This is a biblical command. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. As we walk through Joshua, you need to see these little pictures of the spiritual war that gets fought and that Satan is a deceiver and you need to realize that, that he's actively working to deceive you and will sometimes use your voice. The only way to defeat that is to learn the voice of the father, to know the shepherd's voice and to walk into close proximity of other believers who know his voice and can speak truth to you. That's the only shot we've got. Otherwise, according to the book of Hebrews, our hearts will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Otherwise, according to the book of Joshua and the book of Judges, we will slowly, slowly surrender to sin more and more and more in our lives until we've completely been given over to idolatry per Romans 1. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, Jesus Christ went to the cross to die for us, that our sins could be forgiven, that we could be set free from the bondage of sin and the slavery to it. You set us free. Father, Satan doesn't want me to believe it. Satan doesn't want me to think that's true. Satan constantly whispers to me about that. 
And I need your word to remind me of the completed work of Jesus Christ at the cross to forgive me, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Father, I need guys and women in my life to remind me of that. We all do. Father, would you just stir in us a desire to fight sin? Would you stir in us a desire to be a set-apart people like you've called us to be? Father, would you stir in us a desire that as we wage war, to know that we've got to know you better and to know that we've got to walk with others? Father, we cannot fight this fight on our own. Even to Adam, whom you walked in perfect fellowship with, you said it's not good for this guy to be alone. And he was walking physically with you. Father, would you build us up as your body into a holy priesthood? Would you build us up, Father, do all that you intend to do through your people? Father, would you do it? Would you make your son's name great? It's in his name we pray. Amen.